0: Good morning, church. It's good to see you and be with you today. I want to begin by asking you a question. Who are you? I mean that in a deep way. Uh, I mean that for you and me to think about Who are you? Now, in the field of psychology, uh, those who have done scientific study on us, on humans, they have learned some things that are true and helpful about us. They have studied the souls, the mental life of you and of me in clinical and scientific ways. And they have learned that from a very young age uh, some humans identify themselves related to their age. Uh, Have you ever met someone uh, and they they say to you, I just turned 10. (laughs) And their age, their self-awareness of their age is related to their self-identity. I am 10. I made it. A child might say, I'm a girl. A boy might say, "Uh, I'm 10. Um, (laughs) a, A boy or girl might say, I'm going to be a fireman when I grow up. A college graduate might say, I went to Chico State. Education plays a role in an answer to the question, um, who are you? A man might say, I'm a public school teacher. One's vocation plays a role in answering the question, who are you? I'm short, I'm tall, I'm a triathlete, I have cancer, I'm a chess player, I'm an artist. I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent, I'm single, I'm married. There are countless other realities that psychologists tell us contribute to your view of self, to your self-identity. How does scripture answer the question, who are you? If you are a follower of Jesus, How does the Bible answer the question, who are you? What is the identity of a Christian according to Scripture? David Paulson is, I think, a huge amount of help when he uh, says this. He says, the fallen human heart, without fail, misconstrues who I am. What he is saying, do you get what he's saying? He's saying all of us, we misconstrue who we are. We are among good company when we are not sure who we are or we are confused about who we are or we don't know who we are. The fallen human heart without fail misconstrues who I am. David Paulson, by the way, is a psychologist, He is a Christian psychologist. He is a psychologist for who various schools of psychological thought or ideology are not central. It is not Freud or Jung or some other modern psychotherapy that is central to his psychology. What is central to his psychology is the scriptures and God. This is an Ivy League trained PhD who says, the fallen human heart, without fail, misconstrues who I am. I think even those here today who do not believe in Jesus' death and resurrection would agree with this. They might say it differently, but I think they would agree. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we supposed to be? We are broken people. And so our answers to that question are difficult and hard. And yet by God's grace, you and I can understand what our identity should be according to Scripture. And that's in part what we are going to do today, is to help us move From the places that we often are, a false view, a broken view of who I am, to a biblical view of who I am. And the reason I'm talking about this today is not simply because I want to talk about this today. I'm talking about this today because in the prayer that we are about to look at, that Helen just read part of it for us, in this prayer, there is one thing that is repeated ten different times. Ten times in these few paragraphs we're about to look at. And that, uh, that repetition is in quotes on the screen. Where David describes himself in this prayer before God as your servant. Your servant, your servant, your servant. Ten times. And I want to suggest that that phrase... As he is praying, one of the most beautiful prayers written in Scripture, this intimate prayer where he is alone with God, it's it's almost like we're we're, we're trespassing, it felt like to me this week as I'm reading this, like I I, I trespassed into this intimate moment between David when he is praying with God and, and pouring his heart out. But of course, we're not trespassing. The Spirit inspired the author of 2 Samuel to write this so that God actually ordained us to trespass and see what his intimate prayer is like. And he describes himself as your servant. And I want to suggest that that little phrase and the concepts behind it are a big part of what it means to understand or answer the question, who are you? And what is your identity? So I hope your, your Bibles are open. We're going to go through this passage. We're going to see these ten occurrences of this phrase. And then we'll come back um, after we go through the passage and talk about, in a very practical way, I hope my desires, this would be very, incredibly practical for you to talk, about, for, to talk about from a biblical perspective who you are as a Christ follower. Who I am as a Christ follower. Not just out of 2 Samuel but also from a couple New Testament passages. So with that, let's uh, hope you have your Bibles open or your devices open. You'll be able to track with me much better. And you're here today. We just encourage you to grab the Bible in the chair in front of you or get your device out, uh, put that thing on silent or turn it down. But let's take a look together at verses 18 and 19 is where we're going to start. 1 Samuel 7, verse 18. So in verse 18, it says, the king, then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, and then we have his prayer. And if you weren't here last week or you're visiting today, let me just kind of set the stage as what's happened here in chapter 7 and what's happened in recent, uh, in the chronology here of 2 Samuel, what's happened recently. You might remember, uh, David wanted to build something for the Lord. What was it, church? What did he want to build? A house. He wanted to build a house for the Ark of the Covenant. David is the king. He's in Jerusalem. He hasn't been there that long. He's in this incredible palace. And he recognizes that the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. The central place of worship for ancient Israel was in a tent. He's like, hey, this is not a good idea. Let's get a house built for the Ark of the Covenant and for our gatherings of worship. And what did God say, church? What did he say to David? Did he say, build build it? What did he say? He said, no. He said, don't build me a house. I haven't asked for a house. I didn't tell you to build a house. I've been moving along. But then God said to David, actually, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to turn you into a spiritual house. There is going to be a spiritual dynasty that you are going to be the beginner of. And there is going to become a greater David. We know it was the Messiah, Jesus, the son of David, who would come. So God said to David, I'm going to build you a house. And in Back to our text here. Let me try and pick up the pace. So King David, he went in. I think he went into the tent. He went into the tent. And he sits down before the Lord. And what does he say there? Let's take a look at the beginning of this prayer. He says, who am I? O Sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me thus far? In your imagination, think of him. He's in a palace. He lives in this incredible place. He has tremendous power. He's in a tent worshiping God, saying, how unbelievably incredible that you brought me here. What is my family? My family was not a prominent family. Those of you that might remember from weeks and weeks or months ago, Saul made a fun of this family. This was not uh, the, the Kennedys or the Clintons or the Bushes. Who, Saul was like, who is this guy, Jesse? Who, David, what family is he from? He, he, he's from a nobody family. You've brought me this far, God. And as if this were not enough, verse 19, in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant, meaning the spiritual house of your servant, meaning God has said you are going to reign your descendants forever and ever and ever. He had no idea in detail about the coming Messiah, Jesus, who a thousand years later would come as the Messiah, In history, he actually came and he died a death on the cross and he rose from the dead on the third day. This is the house that is going to be built. And then at the end of verse 19, we have a very difficult sentence. My translation says, Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? Uh, Another translation, the one that Helen read, says, And this is instruction for mankind. Oh Lord God, with an exclamation point. I think this is a better understanding of a very difficult Hebrew sentence. What this is saying is this is, this is instruction for, for your people. The Holy Spirit inspired this word to be written down and knew that God knew that 3,000 years later we would be reading this. This is instruction. This is incredible. That this prophecy that there's going to be a house, a lineage, a a descendant of David who would be the Messiah and reign as king forever. Let me back up just a moment as you're following along in your Bible, hopefully, and and I'm reading a translation and many of us have different translations. Another word in addition to the the phrase that is repeated most in this prayer, uh, your servant. The thing next that is repeated most is the name of God. My translation translates it, Sovereign Lord. And it is two words in in Hebrew. It's the words Adonai and Yahweh. And as I say the word Yahweh, if we had Jewish folks here today, especially those from the Orthodox tradition, I probably wouldn't say that word. They have a long history of not saying the sacred name of God, that we often say as Christians as Yahweh. Maybe you've interacted with an Orthodox Jew who's, who's communicated with you in a certain way where you're like, well, why didn't you say the name of God there? Or they write in a certain way. So this is that sacred name of God, Yahweh, and before it is the word Adonai, which generally means Lord. I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but our English translations, when they come to that sacred name, which is just four conson- consonants, for God, that Orthodox Jews would say, we actually don't even know how to pronounce it because we haven't pronounced it for thousands of years, so Yahweh is a good guess, but we don't even know how to pronounce this word. Our translations, as a sign of respect to them, would translate Yahweh as Lord, as Adonai. That's why it's translated that way. But here we have the word Adonai next to Yahweh, so it would be Lord, Lord, which doesn't sound too good, does it? So anyway, that was a long way to go. Did I lose you guys? That's why mine says sovereign Lord and yours may say Lord God. We have different things. So that is repeated seven times. This is a, just a, a powerful way for David to address his God in this personal and intimate way. And notice at the end of verse 19 is the first of 10 occurrences of this phrase, your servant. David prays as God's servant. He is the king of Israel. He is powerful. He has authority. He's a commander-in-chief. He has power and authority like the president of the United States or Xi Jinping, the people's Republic of China. He he has tremendous power and authority, but he describes himself as your servant. This is part of a biblical identity. We're going to talk more about this in just a few moments. Let's come back to our text. We're in the middle of this intimate prayer. I believe David is inside of the tent. He is sitting down, the Ark of the Covenant and the other things are there. Um, sometimes in prayer, people in the in the Bible, people stand when they pray. This is he's he's seated. Sometimes people raise their hands. We don't have any mention of hands here. He's gone into the tent. He's seated. Verse twenty. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Sovereign Lord. It might seem strange to use your name in the third person. But I think the careful reader here is supposed to see, why is he speaking of himself in the third person? It's not very often when we're praying and we mention our own name. But if you bounce your eyes over to earlier in chapter 7, in verse 9, it says, I will make your, David's name, great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. David didn't ask for that. God, in his sovereign grace, decided to make David's name great. And Jesus, the Messiah, would be known as the son of David. And so I think this is a a, a link back to what God has said to David. What more can David, the the one whose name you are are, by your sovereign grace is, is going to make great, say to you, back to verse 20, For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. Verse 21, For the sake of your word and according to your will, You have done this great thing. And the great thing is is not having David build a house for the ark, but God is building a house out of David. And you have made it known to your servant. There it is again, your servant. Verse 22, how great you are. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. David is speaking here in these in verse 22, about the uniqueness of God and about the beauty of God. I want you to hear today what David is saying, and this would be in your heart, and this would be part of your prayer life. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. How great you are, Father. How great you are, Jesus. There is no one like you. There is no God but you. And we've heard this with our own ears. Again, what I think he's referring to is, I'm going to build you into an eternal house, an eternal kingdom. The son of David, a greater David, is coming. And this is just a reflection of the beauty and glory and and, and just unmistakable grandeur of our God. Our God is beautiful. This is something that we have trouble seeing spiritually. It's not too dissimilar to how we have difficulty answering the question, who am I? we have difficulty answering the question, who is God? And a big part of the answer to who is God is that he's beautiful. He is full of beauty. The quality that is present in a thing or a person giving intense pleasure or deep satisfaction to the mind. There is nothing more beautiful than God. He is infinitely creative. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely knowledgeable. He is infinitely everything. He, everything that is good and true and noble and right. God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. And that sum is an infinite amount. He is the sum of all desirable qualities. This is what is coming out in David's heart as he is praying uh, this prayer. Let's come back to this prayer, verse 23. And who is like your people Israel? the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. Let's pause here for a moment again. So God in his grace chose Israel, not because God is an Israeli or Israelite supremacist. He is not. It was simply his sovereign grace that he chose Israel and not China or the Cherokee Nation or whatever countries existed in 2000 B.C. in the ancient Near East. His grace and his mercy, he chose Israel, but his plan was not to simply focus his love and affection and election upon Israel, but upon the whole earth of every tribe, of every tongue, every nation. So there's a church in Papua New Guinea. There's a church in Canada and Mexico and Israel and the United States. And in almost every nation... That is the mission we have, to take the gospel everywhere. But he began here with this one nation, not because they were more numerous or smarter or more beautiful. It was simply his sovereign grace that he chose Israel. Verse 24, You have established your people Israel as your very own forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, verse 25, Lord God, keep forever the promise you made concerning your servant, In his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. The men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. And we know now, reading, after the coming of the Messiah, after the coming of the Son of David, that God's intention to bless the world would come from one who was from Israel. Israel, one who was a Jew, the Messiah Jesus, the God-man who came. This is part of the house that God has promised to build through David. Verse 27, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you, so your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy And you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, you, Adonai Yahweh, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. David could not have known how his House and lineage would be blessed forever, but we know we read of that historical lineage in the genealogy in Matthew 1, at the end of the book of Ruth, in all kinds of places. This is glorious. This is awesome. This is an intimate prayer. And I want to now springboard from this 10 times repeated phrase um, that goes all the way to the last sentence Your servant will be blessed forever. Your servant. There is one interpretation of scriptures, but there are many, many applications. I could have gone application in many, many different directions. I'm going in the direction today of who are you, of who am I? And we begin with this phrase and this theology behind your servant, your servant. So how important is this concept? How important is it to, when we answer the question, when you answer the question, Who am I? Who are you? How important, from a biblical perspective, is it that you are a servant? You are a servant of Jesus, of King Jesus. Look with me on the screen in Matthew Matthew chapter 20. This is what King Jesus said. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. We don't have time to dive too much into the context of Matthew 20, but just very briefly, let me just tell you what was going on here. It's something that we can relate to, especially those of us that are parents. Parents want their children, whether they are uh, little, whether they are adults, to do well, to thrive. And the mother of James and John, Salome, she was no exception. Some of you know where I'm going. What, you remember what she asked? What did she ask Jesus? Front row. Help me out. That That's right. She said, hey, hey, Jesus, this is during his earthly ministry. Hey, hey, would it be all right if my sons, like if one, you know, when you establish your kingdom and you reign on the throne of David forever and ever and ever, would it be a big deal if, you know, my boys, one of them could be on your right and one could be on your left? that's what I would like for my sons. I don't want them to be firemen or lawyers or doctors. I want one to be at your right hand and one on your left when you come into your kingdom. We smile at that because those of us who are parents, we can identify with that mother's heart, right? But Jesus, as he often does, takes a question and he goes in a very different direction. Because what we should be desiring is not for our children primarily to be in positions of prominence, but for our children and for us to serve, to be servants. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, at his first coming, did not come to have servants. He came to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. This is central to the identity of a Christ follower. This is central to the identity of David, who has the most prominent position in his nation. He's the only one that, that had a certain crown and certain robes. He's the only one that, that people would bow down to in in. in you know, I don't know that they exactly curtsied, but you know what I mean? They, they would treat him a certain way that no one else was treated. But David sees that as not important. It's not as important as being the servant of the king of kings, of Adonai Yahweh. David is a servant. And much more important than David being a servant is the son of David, Jesus, came to serve. And we are called to serve as well. Now, when you were a child or if you're here and you're a young person, nobody I've never heard anybody, when I grow up, I want to be a servant. I want to be a maid. I want to be a footman or a butler now this is a photo supposedly from Victorian England right they didn't have nice photos like this back then but if you were a prominent person from a prominent family in Victorian England you had a ton of servants you you had maybe dozens of servants In your prominence, the answer to the question, who am I, was partially related to how many servants you had. Jesus flips this upside down. And he calls us to be servants. David shows us a piece of this by his self-description in the prayer. But Jesus goes much further in instructing us. I, uh, I didn't have a, a tuxedo or a black tie, but, and I didn't use the word servant, but I worked for an extremely well-to-do family, seven or eight-figure income. I've shared that with you before. The year after I graduated, uh, my last year of college, year after, I had many employees on their estate there in, in Montecito, and Santa Barbara. Um, nobody there had the kind of thinking that I want to be the gardener here. I want to be the office manager here. I I, I want to be a servant here. You had thinking of, like, I would one day want to have a place like this and have a gardener and have maids and have a chef and have someone like a, a college student who gets my gasoline and groceries and runs errands for me. We're not talking about vocation right now, really. I'm using vocation as an illustration. That Jesus' desire for your identity and my identity is to be a servant. It's irrespective of whether we are in our vocation, a custodian, or whether we are from a prominent family like the Kennedys or the Clintons or the Bushes, whether we have a seven or eight figure income, or whether we have minimum wage income. As a follower of Christ, our identity is not in either of those vocations, but it's in being a servant. So you should be thinking, well, does Jesus really teach this? Look with me on the screen at John 13. Before he goes to the cross, the last thing that he does with the people that he spent most of his time with, there were 12 men. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. And he said, and he's saying this to us this morning, the word of God is living. So it was for them for a moment in time in history for their lives. And it is for all time until Christ comes back. We believe he really came. We believe he is coming back. And he says to us this morning through the living word of God, do you understand what I have done for you? Now, if you're like me and you're prideful, of course I do. I've read this passage before. So put that aside and and, and answer the question rightly, no, I don't. I'm aware that I'm spiritually blind. Do I understand what what Jesus has done for me? No, I don't fully. Because when I'm asked who I am, when I ask myself, when I'm lying on my bed at night or early in the morning or during this week as as I'm praying and reading this passage, and I'm asking the question, who am I? I struggle with the answer to that question. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord. These are prominent titles for a a Jewish rabbi, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And then Jesus finishes with this very important sentence. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now if you know these things, what are these things? These things are lowly acts of service that we do for one another as Christ followers. Because part of the answer to the question, who am I, is I am a servant of Jesus. And Jesus came not to have as many servants as possible and to be prominent, he came to serve. Ultimately to die and suffer for you and for me. This is a historical event that happened. His death on a cross 2,000 years ago. Now that you know these things, lowly acts of service, Jesus washed their feet, something that would have been outrageous for Jesus to do. You know, maybe to to wrap our, our imaginations around this more, if we go back to Victorian England time. For the Lord or for the King of England to wash the feet of his maid. That didn't happen. You don't do that. This is what Jesus is doing when he washes the feet of the disciples. And he says, This is what I want you to be like. It is God's will. For a major part of your identity and my identity to be a servant has nothing to do with whether we're a custodian or a billionaire or a teacher or whatever. This transcends that. This transcends that. One commentator writes this. He says, the revered and exalted Messiah assumes the role of the despised servant for the good of others. He shows us how to live. He shows us who we are supposed to be. Part of the answer to the question biblically, who am I? As I'm Christ's servant, he is my king and master, and he's called me to have an orientation to do lowly acts of service to others, to anyone, but especially to those brothers and sisters of Christ. Because we know that this is what he's called us to. One of the most beautiful examples I've seen of this was some years ago in our church, we had um, a mother had just had a child. And the women from her small group uh, went to her, her home, three bathrooms in her home, went to her home with cleaning supplies and just cleaned her bathrooms. Who does that? Who comes to your home I mean, most of us, it's hard to be served, isn't it, like that? Like the thought of people showing up unannounced to clean your bathrooms. It, it, it's powerful. It's Christ-like. It's who he wants us to be. It transcends our vocation. It transcends our, our jobs, our, our, our income. Who am I? I am Christ's servant. I want to connect this, 2 Samuel 7, with a couple New Testament passages. I'm going to put them on the screen now that are related to the question, who am I in our identity? They're both from the book of Galatians. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There was racism, religious snobbery, in the first century. And that division fell a lot along the lines of whether you were a Jew or a non-Jew. Galatians 3 is saying, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. This new community, God has been in the process of redeeming people from the world from from the time of the fall. From Israel To the church, which is in every tribe and tongue and nation and language and people. He's saying there is neither Jew nor Greek. This is saying that our identity has very little to do with race. The Jewish person doesn't stop being a Jewish person. The non-Jewish person doesn't stop being a Gentile. But that diminishes in the life of the followers of Jesus. My identity is not so closely connected with being an Italian or a Canadian or an American or a Chinese person. Who am I? There is neither Jew nor Greek. I don't cease to be a Canadian when I become a Christian. But the degree to which the answer to the question, who am I, and I am a Canadian, that gets greatly diminished when I know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in a personal way. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. In this community of Christ followers, where we are on the socioeconomic scale is not important. It's not important. So, in the book of Acts, we see People at the very lowest rung of the socioeconomic category, no no bankruptcy filing in the ancient world. If you were massively in debt, you became a slave. You became in the very lowest of the socioeconomic category. And in Colossae and these other churches in the first century, there were slaves and incredibly wealthy people Worshipping together. In fact, they were worshiping in the homes of the incredibly wealthy people in the first century. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free socioeconomic category, there is neither male nor female. This is a huge deal in the first century. Slaves were similar categorically in the thought of people with females. In the first century, you say is that really true? Does This guy know what he's talking about. The historian Flavius uh, Josephus he writes this. He says, "For says the Scripture, a woman is inferior to her husband in all things." Don't say amen to that. So this is false in two ways. Number one, women are not inferior. To men. Say amen. Amen. Women are not inferior to men. So that's false. It's also false that the scripture says that. So Jesus is helping us to answer the question who am I? It doesn't mean that we're not Canadian or Mexican or American. It doesn't mean that we don't have socioeconomic realities. It certainly doesn't mean that we cease to be a man or a woman. But in Christ Jesus, these things are not central to the answer to the question, who am I? I belong to King Jesus. I am his. That is central to my identity. Christians now belong to each other in such a way that distinctions that formally divided them lose significance. They're not gone, but they lose their significance. I'm thinking of the times where I've seen this so beautiful. You see it in extremes more than you see it here. So I I lived in Santa Barbara, some. I lived in this, you know, super wealthy person's estate for a while I went to a church in Santa Barbara at that time and there would be food out every morning and there would be people who were living on the street in Santa Barbara that would be in that sanctuary worshiping. And then there would be people from Montecito that have all of the servants worshiping in that sanctuary. They'd sometimes be sitting right next to each other. A a, a dude with seven or eight figure income is sitting next to a guy who who, who slept out back in, in some little patch along the freeway. Worshipping Jesus together, loving each other. Christians now belong to each other in such a way that distinctions that formerly divided them lose significance. Back to our friend David Paulison, who's not relying on the latest psychotherapy. He's not relying on any particular school of psychology. He says, the fallen human heart, without fail, misconstrues who I am. Who am I? Who am I? Or another way to ask it is, who do I want to be? A big part of who we are as Christ followers is we are called to be servants. That's a big part of our identity. And then the second part is that we are in Him. It is not the second part, it is the main part, it is the central thing. Who am I? I am in Christ. I am a a servant of the King of Kings, of the Lord of Lords, of, of Jesus. He is my master. He is my Lord. He loves me. He is incredibly beautiful and glorious. And so these things, my race, socioeconomic standing, my gender are less important. Fallen human heart without fail misconstrues who I am. So we have all of these things that are real as we think about who we are. But who I am, really, is a follower of Jesus. I am in him. I am in Christ. Last verse I want to look at is Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I used to be someone who was defined by what I did for a living, my socioeconomic standing, the family I'm from, Whatever it is, my hobbies. I used to be someone, I uh, answered the question, who am I? By, by those lesser things. But that someone has been crucified with Christ. And that person no longer lives. But this is kind of crazy. Christ lives in me. So the other verse in Galatians, I'm in Christ. Now we're reading, Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's, the word servant isn't there, but there it is. He loved me and he gave himself for me. He's, he served me by dying in my place as my sin substitute on the cross. He showed me how to live by washing the disciples' feet. He's called me to do lowly acts of service for anyone and everyone, especially for those that I know and love in my small group, in my sphere of Christian friends. Christ lives in me. In a denial of what we are not, um, in this document, 10 Affirmations and Denials of Ethnic Harmony Justice in the Church, they write this, we deny that any self-defining characteristic is more significant than our identity in Christ. Who am I? I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. That is who I am. When I am thinking rightly, when I am close to him, when I am in a place like David was as he went into the tent, this happened in history, there was a real king named David. Archaeological evidence supports it. He went into this tent, and he prayed this prayer. And he rightly sees himself as your servant. We now, 3,000 years later, know more fully about the house that God would build through David. And it is a house in Christ that is, to take in, that is to be taken, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to all of the nations. So Christ lives in me. That's who I am. And I am in Christ. Your deepest identity is an identity you can never lose, ever. Your deepest identity is being in Christ and Christ being in you. That is who you are. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, so many things impact how we think of ourselves, who we are. Your word has called us to be servants. Your word has called us to put down lesser things for the greatest thing, the most beautiful thing, which is God Himself, Christ Himself. I pray that you would help us to see that we are first and foremost. In Christ, and Christ is in us, and that you would help us increasingly, regardless of our income, regardless of our physical appearance, regardless of the stature of our family, that we would be men and women, boys and girls that serve others for the sake of God's kingdom, to display the beauty of Jesus. In simple, lowly ways. He asked us if we understood what he did, and we are on a journey to try to understand what Jesus did when he washed the disciples' feet. He's giving us an orientation and a calling that is actually the exact opposite of what we learn in school and in life and in culture. That you've called us to be servants. The Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve. Help us to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.